are with us. If you don't know, I am Pastor Adam Karius, but I'm so glad to see everyone here with us worshiping together this morning. And so we, we have been going through some of our favorite psalms, and so I actually got three weeks off, which was great. It was like a little mini sabbatical, but now I'm back for better or worse. And so uh, as we start a new series, as we go through the book of Galatians, and we're going to spend the next nine weeks going through this book. And so when we go through a book of the Bible, we like to provide the scriptural journals. They're out in the lobby. If you like to take notes, if you're a note taker, these are for you because they have the text of scripture and then a page where you can take notes about that text. And so you can pick one of those up if you want to follow along as we uh, go through this book and you can have your notes all in one convenient location. And so that is for you. And so uh, we're excited to see what God has to say to us through this book. But before we dive in there, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are, for your truth that you've made known to us, for your love that you've poured out on us. Lord, I pray for this time as we open up your word, that you bring it to life in our hearts and our minds, that we may see you anew, that we can encounter you in the ways we need to and realize the truth of how you saved us through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for this series as we go through the book of Galatians, that we see it not just something that was written so long ago, but something that is relevant today for our lives and for our faith. Lord, we love you. We seek you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Good news is easy to share. I'd rather say good news is fun to share, isn't it? When you have good news, you want to tell someone. When you have good news, you don't fear being shot as a messenger because people want to hear it. Good news is fun and easy to share, and we naturally do it. In fact, actually, good news is so, so good that there's actually legends that kind of develop around sharing good news. Just last week, the Fort Smith Marathon was going on, and if you were attending church last week, you noticed it because it was hard to get here because they chose to make the route all around us, and they were not letting people drive on certain roads, uh, I woke up, and the half marathon was going down my street. And I was like, oh, that's fun. So um, I didn't hit anyone on the way, so that was good. But I mentioned that because the legend of the marathon revolves around the sharing of good news. That when the Greeks were in this battle against the Persians, and they defeated the, Greek, the Persian army on the plains of Marathon, they sent out people sharing this good news. And so some soldier ran to Athens about 26 miles away, and he shared this good news about how we won this battle, and then the legend says he's dropped dead. But he shared that good news. And actually in the Greek, when you talk about someone who's sharing good news, you call them evangelists because that's what it means. It means someone who's sharing good news. And so this person was sharing this good news about how the Greeks had won in this victory that was changing the course of the world. But when we think about it, we're all natural evangelists because we naturally love to share good news. When you look at social media, a lot of it is taken up with sharing this good news, whether it's birth announcements, gender reveals, or whatever is going on. People want to share this good news, and they want people to know about it. If you sit in a coffee shop and listen to conversations, chances are you hear people sharing good news, whether it's a new diet that's worked for them or a workout regiment that's worked for them. They like it, and they've seen the benefits, and they want people to know about it because we're natural evangelists. We love to share good news because it's easy to share. 
And when we come to the book of Galatians, we see Paul speaking about the best good news. We see Paul making sure people knew what the good news of Jesus Christ was and that they would not divert from it. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Galatians chapter 1 and we'll be in the first nine verses of the book of Galatians. If you don't have your Bibles, don't fear. It's going to be on the screen behind me. The book of Galatians, it says this, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and to all the brothers who are with me, to the church of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. When we read this letter to the churches in Galatia, before we dig into it, probably our minds go, what is going on in Galatia? And where is Galatia anyways? And so we see this is a letter written by Paul. And if you guys remember, Paul is that great missionary that we learn about in the book of Acts. And he did these three, probably even four, big missionary journeys through the Roman Empire, spreading the gospel, planting churches. And during his first missionary journey, he traveled through this region in modern-day Turkey that kind of spanned that Asia Minor uh, little part of the world. And he preached the good news of Jesus Christ, and he planted churches in these towns in the southern part of that region, in these towns that we can read about in Acts, whether it's in Antioch or Lyconium or Lystra or Derby, he planted these churches that were flourishing, and now he's looking back and he's hearing rumors and he's writing to these churches. Some argue this might be Paul's first letter that he's written to churches in the New Testament, and I think there's good reason to believe it's at least one of his earliest. And so he's writing around A.D. 48, maybe as late as 52, but no matter what, it's really early in the, the history of the, the New Testament church. And he's writing these letters because he's heard that people are following after him and they're disturbing the church. He's hearing that there's false teachers who are coming after him and they're twisting or distorting the truth of Christ. The main group that he's going to encounter a lot, actually the main theme of this book is encountering this one group known as the Judaizers or the circumcision party. It's this group of Jewish Christians who believe that to become a Christian, someone first would have to become a Jew. They would have to become Jewish in their beliefs. They would have to follow the practices of the Jewish law. They would have to be circumcised if they were male. They would have to take on that before they were accepted by God. And so he's fighting against this because he, Paul, saw this for what it was, and that is what we would call legalism. 
This idea that through man-made, working our own power, following our own rules, these man-made regulations, that somehow we could earn God's favor and work our way into God's good graces. And Paul is writing to remind the church of Galatia, the churches in Galatia, stand firm on the truth of Christ that I have declared to you. And when you look at this first part, he's really summing up the gospel or or the good grace that God has given to us in this. I would sum it up with this, that the grace of God is the Son given. And when we think about God's grace given to us, this grace, this unmerited favor, this, this pouring out of undeserved love and care, this relational initiative that God starts, if you think about what that is, this grace is wrapped up and manifested in this one monumental fact that he gave his son for us, that he saves us through Jesus Christ, that the grace of God is the Son given. And that's what I believe these first nine verses point to, as well as the whole book as it is. is. But let's dig into these, this first book, this first part of the book of Galatia. Galatians. Sorry, man. We see how Paul starts his letter with a greeting. Paul, an apostle, not from men or through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. We see first of Paul is making his position very clear of who he is, that Paul is an apostle sent through Jesus Christ by God the Father. That Paul is someone who's sent by God, not by men. That's all that apostle means. It means like sent one. And that, that Paul is saying, hey, I have been given authority by God to preach this good news of Jesus Christ. He sent me. No man has sent me. No institution has sent me. But God himself has sent me to make this known to all. So hear my words. And if we know Paul's story, we see how this is true. If we believe the book of Acts, when, when Paul, who was anything but someone sent by God to spread the good news, he was actually working against the church. He wanted the church to be brought down. He thought they were preaching heresy, and he was worshiping the God of Israel. And so he says, these people need to be stopped. And so he actually was there um, uh, giving uh, allowance to the stoning of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And then he was talking to the church council, the, the ruling council of the Jews, and said, hey, let me take give me letters. Let me go to other cities and let me find these Christians and let me lock them up for they need to be stopped. And that's what he was doing when he was on his way to Damascus when all of a sudden Jesus showed up and Paul got knocked on his butt because that's what happened. He was journeying to Damascus and Jesus showed himself to Paul, knocking him on the ground and said, what are you doing? Why are you persecuting me? From that point on, as we see in the book of Acts, Paul realizing that Jesus truly is the Christ, the Son of God, growing to that realization, being trained by disciples, and then becoming one of the greatest missionaries that we have, we see in the New Testament. And so we see his story, how he can say, hey, no person sent me. No institution sent me. God sent me. Jesus showed up in life and gave me a commission to go. And we see his position, but we also see his purpose. To make 
Christ known. That he, that he is not an apostle by man, or through, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. And right there we get the snapshot that he's going to elaborate in a few verses about this gospel that his purpose is to make Christ known. The person who was raised from the dead. This person who was crucified by Roman soldiers at the, at the order or the, the, the wanting of the Jewish council, this now person who died has been raised from the dead that has changed all of history. This is what Paul is making known. We see his purpose as he's going to declare what this gospel is, this good news to all who have ears. And so when we look at Paul and this, even this little short, uh, short introduction to this letter, we see his, his position as an apostle, and we see his purpose. I would argue that Paul's position as apostle is unique to him and the other apostles of his time. That they were given a unique uh, command and commission by God to spread the gospel in these unique ways that kind of re- and resulted in a large part of what we call the New Testament. That this is a unique position that they had, but we also see the purpose, and that purpose is carries over to all Christians who know the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And that purpose is to make him known to all who have ears. Which means that when we look at this, his purpose should be our purpose, or I should say, our purpose should be aligned with his purpose to making Christ known to those who, know, who need to know who Christ is. But what is that which we make known? It's the gospel, the good news. As we see in his next part when he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds like another greeting, another kind of salutation. It's grace and peace. But I really think it's almost like a little summary, a little snapshot of what this good news is. Grace and peace. That grace, we have this grace, this unmerited favor, this, this, this undeserved love, this, this initiative that God takes on our behalf to love us in spite of us. That why we're still sinners, Christ comes to die for us. This is grace. This is the foundation of the gospel. We have done nothing to earn God's love. We have done nothing to deserve him to look upon us with favor. And yet he does. That is grace. And also in grace, but also peace. That before, in our own sin, we were enemies of God, not just enemies. We were fighting against him, rebelling against him, spitting in his face. We wanted nothing to do with him. We were going our own way. We were at war with God. And Christ brings us peace, bringing us back into relationship with our creator, our maker, making it so that we can stand before him, not in our own righteousness, but now Christ's righteousness and be welcomed home. Grace and peace to you, Paul says. The summary, the snapshot of the gospel is yours. Isn't that so sweet? To be reminded of just these two small words, many words that we read in the Bible so often, and we can just, just run over them and say, oh, that's a, this is a good greeting, but no, such a sweet summary of how God loves us. Grace and peace are ours in Christ. What an amazing thing. But Paul, like any good preacher, does not want to just leave it short, so he expands it. He says, 
talking about Jesus, uh, talking about Jesus says, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God, the, of, of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He expands on that short little two-word summary of the gospel and says, this is how Christ saves us. He gave himself for us. Now we read that, and that's, that's shorthand, and we immediately probably go right to the cross. That's how he gave himself for us. But I would argue, no, let's expand that a little bit and see how Christ gave himself for us. That Christ gave himself for us when he chose of his own free will to step down from heaven into a human babe and said, here I am for you. He gave himself when he was incarnate in the flesh. That Christ gave himself for us when he lived as one of us, suffering as we suffered, going through the trials that we go through every day. He walked in our footsteps. He gave himself for that, for us in that. That he gave himself for us when he taught the multitudes, when he healed people who were sick, when he demonstrated again and again who he was, he gave himself freely, asking nothing in return to show who he was. He gave himself for us all so we can see him for who he is. And then yes, he gave himself for us as he went to the cross, as he gave his life for us so that we could have life in Christ, in, in, in God, with God. That he gave himself for us as he took upon our sins as he was nailed to that cross and gave us his right standing before the holy almighty God. He gave himself for us. And that is the good news. The truth of how he saves us. That if we believe in that and repent of our ways and follow him, this is true for us. This is how he has given himself for us. That he gave himself in all those ways and we could even expand it more for you. You who believe in him, he gave himself for you. That is the good news that Paul is willing to travel across the world to share. That's the good news that gets us up and willing to face hardships, to make known is that he gave himself for us. Why? To deliver us from the present evil age. Now we're being delivered. We need to be delivered. That on our own, we're stuck, we're enslaved to sin, we're enslaved in this dark world, and so now Christ comes to break us free and to deliver us from this present evil age. He delivers us from ourselves, from our sins, he delivers us from the enemy, he's delivering us from the world, and that is what he's doing. He's pulling us home, he's pulling us out of the dominion of darkness into his, the kingdom of light that is in his son. He's bringing us to where we're supposed to be, he's delivering us. Sometimes we can read this, though, when we say he's to deliver us from the present evil of this, this age, and we look around and say, we're not delivered. Man, yeah, I can, I can sense that he's pulled us from, the, we're no longer part of that, but he, we're still in this world. We still suffer hardships. We still suffer evil at the hands of other people. We still you know, just have the blues some days, and we long for what's going on. And we say, what is, where is the delivery? 
But this is kind of like the down payment that we've been delivered spiritually from this present evil age. We've been set apart so that when he comes again, we will be ushered into his kingdom completely and fully and experiencing nothing that we're experiencing of the hardship of this world now. He's delivered us and will deliver us, not just from this present age, from everything that harms us or keeps us from him. He delivers us, setting us apart to be his. This is all according to the will of the Father. Our God, the Father. Sometimes people want to make this gulf or this, this kind of um, division. Sometimes they use the New Testament versus the Old Testament. Sometimes they just talk about the Father and, then, and Jesus and say, well, the, you know, God, the Father is stern and uncaring and he's just harsh and he's a rural, you know, uh, wants us to follow these rules, but Jesus is the one where we get love. And how, how absurd is that if we read our Bible? From the very start, we see God being a God of love who loves us and is moving heaven and earth to bring us back and is culminated in Jesus. And so Jesus coming to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, that is all part of God's plan, his covenant of redemption, people call it, that before the foundation foundations of the earth were even laid, as Paul says in Ephesians, God got together with himself and said, how are we saving our people? And the son said, send me and I will save them. And so he went, and he saves us according to the will of the Father and all glory to God. That no one else gets the glory in the salvation economy. No one else can weasel and say, I have done something, I have earned it, I have, I have achieved this level of status, I have saved myself. No, it's all to the glory of God. Why? Because in spite of ourselves, the Son came to save us from ourselves, to bring us back to God. And he ends this introduction to the gospel with that lovely word, Amen. Amen. However you want to say it. So interesting word. It's, 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 in our, it's in our Bibles, but it's actually a Hebrew word that if you look in the Greek Bibles, it's just transliterated. And so they don't even translate it. They just bring it over. And it kind of came on this, this status of ending prayers as we're kind of used to it ending it. But it carries this meaning of uh, so be it or truly or let this be true. And it's this word that has this rich meaning throughout the history within the Jewish faith and then in the, in the Christian faith. And it kind of ends this this doxology, this praise of God with this, let this be true, so be it statement. And I love this because uh, when I'm looking at this word, I love how one commentator, Todd Wilson, kind of puts it. He says, when we say amen, we are more than observers. We've moved from being spectators to being participants. Amen is our way of entering into this divine drama, taking up our part, assuming our roles in the story of grace called the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's pointing out this question of, can we say amen with Paul? Paul reaches this point, and he's like, amen. It's like end of this doxology, this praise of God. Amen. Let this be truly. I believe this. I stand firm on this. And his invitation to all who would read this, can you say this amen as well? 
Can you hear about how Christ has saved us? Can you hear about how God has sent his son? Can you hear this and believe this and say with Paul, amen? Praise be to God. It's an invitation for all of us to look inside and say, do we believe the truth of the gospel? Do we believe the truth of the gospel and are we willing to organize and, and redefine our life because of this truth? And I hope the answer for all of us is yes. That we see this being true and we want to follow him. Because the grace of God is the son given. But there's trouble brewing in Galatia, which is why Paul wrote this letter. There's trouble brewing in which why Paul has to remind people there is no other gospel to follow. We see that in the next, starting in verse 6 and down through verse 9, we see this trouble that's brewing, that people actually are, dis, are deserting, going away from the gospel, meaning that they once believed, or they're looking at they believed, or they're saying they believe, but now they're being uh, kind of led astray by false teachers, they're being led astray by people who are kind of saying, no, that's not the full gospel, you've got to have something else. They're being led astray, and so, they're, so Paul comes and says, hey, there is no other gospel. People are distorting the truth of Christ, as he says. And when we read the context of Galatia, Galatians and we know what's going on with the Judaizers, we see how they're distorting the truth of Christ. They're adding to Christ. That they're saying, hey, the gospel is all good and all, but hey, you need to do something else. You don't just need to believe in Jesus. You need to practice these rules. You don't just need to follow Jesus. No, you need to follow these regulations and make sure you tick them all off. And so you can see how Paul gets mad here because he really does get mad here is because what he hears is people are coming behind him and telling people, hey, Christ is not enough. People come behind him and saying, yeah, he preached Christ, but guess what? Christ didn't do enough to save you. He didn't actually accomplish what he came to set out to do. He failed in his mission because you need to do something else to save yourselves. And Paul gets riled up here, and as we see in this book of Galatians, he gets riled up a lot. Wait until we get to Galatians 5, verse 12. Look it up later. He gets riled up and he says, Hey guys, what are you doing? You're deserting Christ. How dare you even say you have to add anything to Christ's finished work? You're saying, you're saying that you, you, you think you can add something to what Christ has already done for you? He says, if anyone teaches that, if anyone tells you that, let them be accursed. Paul is in fact saying, if anyone comes to you and says you have to do something else besides believe in Jesus Christ and have the Spirit transform your life, then let them be accursed. Let them take their teaching that comes from hell back to hell from which they came, is what he's saying. He can't get actually firmer in this conviction. He's saying, don't be led astray. Why? Because I love how he says they're coming to bring another gospel and then he corrects himself, no, there actually is no other gospel. Because I love that phrase because he's saying they're coming to bring this other teaching, but whoa, they might call it good news, but guess what, guys, is not good news. The good news is Jesus saved you. 
The good news is despite yourself, Christ came to live and die for you. The good news is that you do nothing to earn or achieve your salvation. That's the good news. What they come to bring, at best, is good advice. Do better. Work harder. Put some feathers in your cap. And maybe God will look on you in a pleasing way. In fact, I don't think that's even good advice. That sounds like horrible advice. Because what they're telling you is you do from your own strength, with your own means, try to earn something before God. And what a worthless position that is. Because we're all fell, we're all messed up, and we can't do enough. And to that, he says, let them be accursed because they forgot the truth that Christ saves us. They forget the truth that Christ has done everything we need for salvation. To be honest, this is actually one of the big differences between Christianity and every single other faith in the world. Really, when you break it down, Christianity says Christ saves us. He changed us. We're anew. And then we live for him and do good, work, good works and we do good deeds because he has saved us. Every other faith says, do. Be good. Follow this list. Do something out of your own power and then maybe, just maybe, you'll be accepted by whatever is out there. This is the difference between what we believe and what the world believes. That Christ has saved us, and we rest in his sacrifice. Now, there is that other side of the coin that we cannot forget that we enter into this life through repentance. We enter through this life through faith, and that results, and we are resulted in a new, new person. We're created afresh. We're, we're renewed in Christ, and then because of that, we get to work. We live for Christ. We serve others. We love people. We are changed, but that only happens after Christ saves us, and we're made new. So often, whether it's from pride wanting us, us wanting us to go before God and say, I did something, or for whatever reasons, people love to try to put the cart before the horse and say, now we got to do something before we enter. But I believe, as Galatians would teach us again and again, we enter by faith in what Christ has done fully for us. And when we're changed, then we start living for him in all those ways. And Paul makes no bones about it, as I said. If anyone comes teaching something else besides this, let them be accursed. It's interesting, you read this, he, he says, you know, even if he comes and teaches something different, even if an angel of the Lord comes down and is going to tell you something different, don't listen to him. And I think that's the, the conviction we have to stand as a church on, that we stand on the gospel, the truth of who Jesus Christ and how he saves us. And so if you hear anyone, whether it's in a small group or whether it's in a Bible study, or if it's even me myself when I speak up here, seeming to add something to Christ's finished work, something that makes that's part of the doorway of getting into the faith, you're supposed to confront that. Now we should do it lovingly, maybe not as strongly as Paul here, but with lovingly, with conviction, and at the right time we confront that and say, what is going on? But I would say fully and completely, if, if I start preaching a different gospel than Jesus Christ and him crucified, fire me and find someone who's going to preach the gospel. Because that is what this church stands on. 
the truth of Him. And we need to be firm in our conviction about that. That we stand on the truth of Christ because the grace of God is the Son given. So how do we do that? How do we stand firm in Christ? Well, I think when we read this passage, we get those kind of clues or those directions. That first thing is that we need to know the gospel. We need to know what the good news is. And that if we don't know the gospel, look to Christ and see it. Ask someone around you, what is this good news? And believe it. And when we believe it, hold firm to it and don't be moved from it. That we believe the truth of the gospel and we're not willing to budge from it. That actually knowing it actually means maybe we need to be able to articulate it to someone else. That we actually need to probably push ourselves and say, I know what I believe, but can I communicate that truth to someone else? And if you never have, or if you don't know if you can, start with a kid. If you can explain the good news of Jesus Christ to a kid, you can explain it to anyone Actually push yourself and say, can I articulate where my hope rests? And we know that gospel. Then we stand firm on it being we don't waver from our beliefs. We don't waver from our conviction. That we don't entertain teaching that might tickle our ear, make us feel good, but lead us away from the truth of Christ. Actually, we guard what we take in. We guard even teaching that we take in and actually evaluate according to the Word of God and seeing does this measure up, does this make sense? So we stand firm on that truth by actually being aware of what we're listening to. We stand firm on it. Which means we need maybe a community around us to help us in that. That we actually need brothers and sisters who know the truth as well, that we can journey to life together and we can help each other stay on track. That this community of the faith should operate in that fashion, that we are in it together, that we are helping each other, moving together in the same direction which is in two towards Christ. And as a community, whether it's in smaller groups in, the, in small groups, or whether it takes place in discipleship groups, or however it happens, you have that community can speak, speak that truth into you, reminding you again and again. Because let me tell you, brothers and sisters, we all have a tendency to drift. If you are a disciplined person, you have a very strong tendency to drift towards saying, look what I have achieved, God. Smile upon me. If you're not a disciplined person, maybe that's not the temptation for you. But we all have this tendency to drift where we want to take something we have done and insert it into the gospel and say, God loves me because I've done this. And the truth of the gospel is God loves you because he loves you in spite of yourself and he sent his son to die for you while you're still a sinner. And now that you've been changed, he now calls you out of the old way of life into a new way of life in which we are going to seek to please him, which we're going to fall, change our lives and leave that darkness behind, but that doesn't get us in as a result of his love for us from the beginning. We stand firm on that truth because that is the gospel way. That God saves us through his son and we respond with our life. So let's hold firm to it. Let's not waver from it. 
Let's watch what teaching comes our way and let's all look back again and again to Christ, our Savior, the one who has done it all. And we can all say amen to that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Your word that we can read, we can understand, we can process. The, the word that actually shows us clearly how you have saved us and how amazing that truly is. Lord, I just ask that you continue to grow us in confidence and certainty of that word. That you continue to work in our lives in the ways we need, we need to remember how you saved us. Give us confidence in the ways in which we need to be confident. Grow us in the ways in which we need to stand firm. And in all of these things, let us look to you. Let us look to your Son, the author and perfecter of our faith, with confidence and certainty. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up again.